One December morning in 1941, Hawaii awoke to a rising sun from the west. This was the weekend it happened, the weekend World War II began. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. We're just getting them going to church on Sunday morning. Heard the noise in the what it was to begin with. They would come over and they went after the air, aircraft first before they went to Pearl Harbor. Then we realized what it was when they took the hangars. When I got on topside, I could see him. Uh, it wouldn't be over uh, 200 feet, at the very most, 250 feet away from us. I had heard previously, it always had heard, you know, you could see torpedoes going through the water. And I could see the torpedoes, the Japanese dropped the torpedoes, and you could see the wake of them, the bubbles from the torpedoes. Follow the torpedo from the time it was dropped off one of the Japanese planes, so they'd come up and hit the West Virginia, which was the ship directly alongside of us. They came close enough to us that had I known the pilot, I could have recognized him. Time has silenced the voices of most of the men who were at Pearl Harbor the day World War II began. But there was a time, not long ago, when you could find veterans of World War II and veterans of that day walking the streets of America. They were our dads, our uncles, our grandpas, our next-door neighbors. And for years, the details of that day and that attack remained vivid in their minds. I was fortunate to interview several such men early in my career, and today on the off-ramp, we'll hear from them, men who were there that morning at Pearl Harbor, the men who awoke to a rising sun from the West. Hi, this is Bob Smith, and welcome to The Off-Ramp, a place to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective. Well, it was nearly 80 years ago, but it was a Sunday very much like a Sunday in December today. Football was in the air. Dodgers are ready to kick off now. They've just scored. Ace Parker did it. Jock Sutherland's boys lead the Giants 7 to nothing. Here's the whistle. Merrill Condon comes up. He boots it. It's a long one down to around the three-yard line. Ward Cup takes it. He's cutting up to his left. He's over the 10. Nice block there by Lehman. Cup still going. He's up to the 25. And now he's hit and hit hard about the 27-yard line. Bruiser Kennard made the tackle. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Stay tuned to WOR for further developments, which will be broadcast immediately as received. One question that popped up for years after Pearl Harbor was whether radar detected the attack before it occurred. Bill Rotrammer, who was a radio operator at Pearl, said that it did. But the blips on the screen were thought to have been B-17s scheduled to arrive that day from San Francisco. Radar was new then and, and very secret, of course. The fellows operating that were friends of mine 
and they detected the Japanese planes coming in, reported it, but it, as I said, it was assumed to be the B-17s. That's the reason for, for the big surprise. Had not been for the B-17s being expected, uh, they would have taken a lot more cognizance of the indication. The opinion seemed to be that the Navy was just simply pulling a surprise attack against the Air Force, and they um, didn't really think it was serious. The, the machine gun setting out there with 30 caliber ammunition, they were firing real ammunition, and it was very clear to us that they were Japanese planes. They had the rising sun insignia, and it was clearly visible. Uh, they came close enough to us that had I known the pilot, I could have recognized him. Didn't expect an attack because the Pearl Harbor, the bastion of the Pacific, as it was known as, uh, we couldn't hardly expect a small nation as Japan, although they were a naval power, to just move in and attack Pearl Harbor. But that's, of course, what they did. Well, Saturday evening, I went to Schofield Barracks, and uh, there was about four or five of us that spent the night there that evening, and the next morning, it was late. Actually, we should have already been up. It was 8 o'clock, almost 8 when this uh, started, being right across the street from Wheeler Field, why we had a ringside seat to it, I recall uh, some of those planes coming down so low that we'd almost expect them to hit trees there in the yard. There was a machine gun set up out there with manned by infantry soldiers, and they uh, were shooting at the, at the planes. But the general opinion seemed to be among everyone, uh, except those who were fighting and firing their machine guns, was uh, that this was a drill. In the early morning hours of December 7, 1941, two waves of Japanese planes swarmed like bees over Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, in a sneak attack that killed over 2,000 Americans. Forty years after that attack, I was in radio and discovered there were a half-dozen veterans in our broadcast area who were at Pearl Harbor. I was 30 at the time, and I was interviewing these men who were all my father's age. One was Sylvester Stoffel of Rickardsville, Iowa. How old were you at the time? Well, let's see, uh, 24. Uh I was in the battleship Nevada. Nevada was about the oldest battleship there that day. Were you on duty at the time, or were you, say, asleep? No, no, we were, uh, we always had Reveille at 5 o'clock, and then, uh, you see, it was on a Sunday morning, and usually on a Sunday we didn't uh, have no extra, just to touch up duties in the bar, and, uh, decks, you know. Uh-huh. That was about all there was to it. And the services didn't start until about 9 o'clock, so I was kind of waiting around. The mass wouldn't start till about 9 o'clock, so I was waiting for that. But, uh... They started to come over, I'd say, uh, probably approximately 10 minutes to 8 when they start the first uh, wave comes. Did you hear the planes yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah, when I got on top side, I could see them. Uh, it wouldn't be over uh, 200 feet, at the very most, 250 feet away from us. Oh, and then you could very plainly see the oh, markings. Oh, sure. You could see the big red, red circle at the bottom of the plane. Uh, 
bottom of the plane, of who's on the bottom, you know, by the wings there, they had two big circles, red circles. Had this been something that you had ever thought would happen, or had they drilled you for this possibility at the Pearl? Oh, yes, yeah, uh-huh. We used to go out maneuvers. We'd jelly come in on a Friday night, and on a Monday morning we'd take off to sea. We'd be on maneuvers, see. <laughs> all the battleships would, would come in on a Friday night, and Monday morning we'd all take off again. Gunnery practice and stuff like that, you know. And they also had, uh, the ship was dark always, I mean, uh, no lights whatever, whatsoever on top side. Everything was dark, you know. Sort of a blackout then. Blackout, yeah. Uh-huh. So that's the way it was on that morning. Yeah, right. And there was some lieutenant from Japan. He was the leader. He was the first one in, and he said they come in with two waves. It was spaced an hour apart, the two waves. And I think the first one was 185 planes. I think the second was 187. Boy, with that many planes, I'm sure the drone of those uh, engines was pretty loud, then. Oh, yes, you bet. Was the Nevada hit very badly? Yeah, we had uh, five bomb hits and one torpedo hit. The torpedo hit was the worst, though. That's the one that done the most damage. Was that one of those aerial torpedoes they dropped from the plane, or was that yeah, one? Yeah, right, mm-hmm. right, yeah. They dropped it right off the bottom of the plane. I would imagine that there were people that were friends of yours that were injured or killed at that time, then, too. Oh, yeah, quite a few. The next couple of days there at Pearl, is that spent in cleanup operations? Right, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it took uh, at least three weeks to get everything cleaned up. You know, all that oil got all over, you know. Yeah, see, those battleships, they usually had about a million gallons of fuel oil out. You know, that gets blown up. That's, that's a lot of fuel oil. Sylvester Stoffel not only got to see how the war began with Pearl Harbor, but he got to see how it ended as well. A year after the conflict, he was in the South Seas and witnessed an atomic bomb explosion by the United States. About July of 1946. They said we were about 20 miles away, but you could see it when a big flash went off. That was at the huge mushroom cloud? Yeah, yeah, right. Jack Cody was another veteran I interviewed who was at Pearl Harbor. His vantage point was as a spectator, viewing the attack from land. We were drafted in uh, July of 41, and then we were down in Pearl Harbor in September of 41. So you uh, you weren't in the service too long before you went over to Pearl then? Just after my basic training, you know. How old were you at the time? 21. We were just getting up going to church for the Sunday morning. Heard the noise, didn't know what it was to begin with. So they come over, and they went after the air- aircraft first before they went to Pearl Harbor. Then we realized what it was when they took the hangars. Went out, we happened to be down there when they were building some barracks and there was a lot of trenches dug for the sewer system. Most of us headed for things like that. And underneath the cement floors of barracks and things like that. Well, they hit pretty close to it, Wheeler Field, which is adjacent to... Across the way? Yeah, Schofield Barracks. After the second wave hit and left, there was still fear that more attacks could come. They thought they might be back. I mean, of course, everything was restricted. I mean, everybody was restricted and everything, but they thought there'd be another wave coming that night, but they didn't. There wasn't a hell of a lot left anyhow after the first two waves to come back after, really. Luckily for Jack Cody, Pearl Harbor was the only hard action he saw in World War II. I come back here for OCS, and after I got my commission, I went to Denver. Bet you were happy you were there. Bet. <laughs> Fought a tough war out in Denver. <laughs> We'll continue with Pearl Harbor Remembered in just a moment on The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith, and we return to our program Pearl Harbor Remembered. 
including recordings I made with Pearl Harbor veterans back in 1981. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. When Tom Butler saw Japanese planes flying over Pearl Harbor, he was just shy of 21 years old. And of all those people I interviewed, he possessed the most vivid and detailed remembrances of that day. He'd already been in the Navy for three years on that December morning. I quit high school. I went in the Navy quite young. I was 17 years old in May, and in June I went in the Navy. So, so I was young. Boy, you were pretty young then, weren't you? Yes, and I'd, uh, I'd, I'd been on the battleship. So in uh, October of 38, I went to the battleship Tennessee. Sounds like you were quite a veteran by the time that rolled around. Well, I'd been on the battleship for three years, yes. So, Were you on the battleship at the time of the I attack? I was on the battleship Tennessee, yes. I was right in front of the Arizona when she blew up. Oh, is that right? Uh, 50 foot away from the Arizona, right behind the Oklahoma. Well, the Oklahoma was, was outboard. The Maryland was a battleship in, which was in front of us. And the Oklahoma was outboard of the Maryland when she turned over. The West Virginia was a battleship that was tied up alongside the Tennessee. The battleships were all tied up about 50 foot apart. And they were tied up to, side by side, uh, headed back to sea. Was that a normal thing? Well, it was a normal way for them tying up. It was not normal for that many battleships to be in the Pearl Harbor at one time. Is that right? We'd been out there operating out of Pearl for uh, approximately 18 months, and uh, we never had that many battleships in the harbor at one time up till December of 1941. And that's when the congestion started more or less? Uh, yes. It was, it was a, well, it was a, a um, we liked, we liked, or I think, it was a political deal. The wives, of course, the... Uh, you'd had this war scare going on for some six or seven months, uh, talk of war. And the wives were sick and tired of their husbands being to sea all the time. So well, they had put pressure on the congressman, the congressman, to get the Navy to have their husbands and have their people in port more times. Is that right? Uh, yes, because we used to, the battleships used to anchor down at Lahaina Roads, which was on down uh, just above the Big Island. Lahaina, Maui, Kola. Uh, Molokai, there's four islands down there. And uh, we used to anchor in between these four islands. And just a couple of battleships at a time be in Pearl Harbor and the rest of them being out, out at this uh, sea anchorage. So things were pretty well spread out prior to that time? Prior to that time, yes. Why did they put them together? Do you have any idea? Uh, well, because we of have that? no idea. That, uh, we have no idea and the history won't tell us. Uh, our feelings was it was strictly the uh, political pressure that wives and the congressmen uh, to bring the people back into port so they'd be in there for the Christmas holidays with their families. I, this is my feeling, of course. What uh, I was a third-class quartermaster, which is uh, enlisted uh, equivalent to your sergeant in the Army or so. Uh -huh. And what in the heck do we know about that type of thing? <laughs> well, sometimes you have more knowledge than, than you might think, I would imagine. Yeah. Did you, did you hear the droning of the planes coming in, or did you hear uh, yes, an explosion? I, I was, uh, see, our habits, uh, a quartermaster is a navigator. It works in the navigation department, and our habits on the ship were when we were at anchor, where we were in port, we slept on the bridge of the ship. Uh, you had no air conditioning in those days. Uh -huh. And so the bridge of the ship was out in the open air, and uh, we had folding cots and quartermasters, since that was our stations and where we were responsible for it, we would sleep on the bridge of the ship uh, while you were in port or when you were in anchor someplace. And so we were sleeping on the bridge of the ship, and we uh, woke up. I mean, I 
my recollection, waking up, you know, hearing the noise going on, hearing the uh, the airplanes and hearing the explosions. And since we were right alongside North Island, which was the naval air station, and we had planes taking off and on routine morning patrols all the time prior to that. That's what I just felt it was. It was the airplanes taking off, you know, on the morning patrol. And then uh, you hear the explosion then, and it's a little bit more than the morning patrol, so uh, he get up out of the cot that we are sleeping on to see what's going on. And uh, we can look out, and the bridge is open, and uh, has what we call a windbreak around it, and we can look out over these and see the airplanes coming in, and uh, all of a sudden you realize, well, these are Japanese marking, Japanese airplanes. You can actually see the pilots flying them. And coming in, you realize then they're bombing the ships, and they're bombing the air station along, right alongside of us. Was it like a bad dream? Uh, yes, it was, really. It takes a few minutes for you to realize what's going on. And uh, I had heard previously, it always had heard, you know, you could see torpedoes going through the water. And this is one of the things that, uh, you know, you want to see whether it's true or not. Uh -huh. And it's true. Because <laughs> I could see the torpedoes, the Japanese dropped the torpedoes, and you could see the wake of them, the bubbles from the torpedoes, uh, which run off of steam at that time, uh, coming up through the water. You follow the torpedo from the time it was dropped off one of the Japanese planes so they come up and hit the West Virginia, which was the ship directly alongside of us. And you could follow them. I followed them up and see them hit the Oklahoma and see the Oklahoma then start to turn over. And uh, you realize, well, something better be done. Now, you, I'm, my battle station is not on the bridge of the ship. My battle station was right down in the very center of the ship <laughs> in the emergency steering stations. And we had been trained, of course, with... Uh, with this and with the event of a general quarters alarm to get up and move. You got an alarm that went off on the ships at those times that rang 99 times. It rang once a second, 99 seconds, and at the end of that 99 seconds, you better be at your battle station. <laughs> or, they had very strict discipline. You were going to get your real kick in the fanny if you weren't there. See? <laughs> so as a matter of course, the minute you that alarm started hitting, and that it did take a couple of minutes, probably a minute or a half, before somebody uh, thought enough to grab and hit that general alarm bell. But once it hit you, uh, it reacted automatically. So you went to your battle station? Uh, yes, and as I walked away from the front of the bridge of the ship, they, we had a bomb hit number or number two turret on the ship and blow the front of the ship off, or, or the front of the bridge off. So I was probably about eight foot away when they blew the space that I had been standing. Lord. Blew it off. And uh, fortunately, that was the closest I came all during World War II to being uh, hit or being in, in serious trouble. But I ended up in my battle station in the center of the ship, and then uh, we had no one aboard the ship who could handle the emergency steering gear, which was right in the very stern of the Tennessee, right in the very back end of it. And I was uh, qualified on this. So after I'd gotten my battle station and things were going pretty good and we realized nobody was back in the stern of it could handle that emergency steering gear if it need be, uh, I then uh, went back to the emergency steering station. So this put me in the very stern of the Tennessee, which was uh, approximately 50 foot in front of the Arizona when she blew up. That's too close for comfort. Uh, it's too close for comfort. It's awfully close when you realize that uh, what is going on up there, because I had seen the Oklahoma turning over. I'd seen her listing about 45 degrees. I didn't see her turn all the way over. You see the bombs coming down. 
and you hear the explosion of the Arizona, you can hear it and feel it even though you've got all your armor plated around, plate around you. And when this happened, it, uh, of course, it set all the water on fire all around us and set our ship on fire. So there, people up above us were trying to put the fire out. I'm down in the very bowels of the ship there in the, in the stern of it. And we had lost our communications and water is pouring in on us. So it's a matter here of about three to four hours that uh, we didn't know whether we were sitting on the bottom or, or just what. Was there a moment there that you thought, this is it, this is the last moment for me? Uh, no, you didn't really think that. You, you really just wondered what was going on when you didn't have any communication. You're closed up in an enclosed armored space down there. We had a, a armored hatch up above us, a 350 pounds, I think it was, an armored hatch, so there was no way we could get out till somebody come in to let us out. Uh-huh. And... Uh, I was the only one, the other people in there, you had a mechanic, you had electricians down there who, this was their normal stations too, in order to run the auxiliary battery power equipment. And uh, I was the only one that really knew what was going on, really knew we were being shot at up there. I knew nothing uh, more personally about what was going on until I got out of the bowels of the ship, which was somewhere around 1.30 in the afternoon. And what did you see when that happened? We were still having explosions. That late, uh, by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we still had fires burning on the various ships and the different minor explosions going on. So this I was is about six hours after the uh, first attack. Yes. Uh -huh. I was attempting to set and record these as they happened. A quartermaster is the one that writes up the history of the ship and the logs uh -huh. and what has gone on. And I was appointed to the job of attempting to take the Tennessee's log and bring it up to date what had happened and what had happened to the other ships and recording the fact that the West Virginia, which was alongside of us, was on the bottom, which the Arizona behind us had blown up and was still on fire, and uh, that the California over on one of the other locations, one of the 1010 docks over in a dry dock where she was damaged, and uh, recording the battle and what had happened to the ship. I, I had the, uh, the enlisted man section of it. I wrote it up, and then, of course, our official log, which is written up by the officer of the day and by the commanding officer of the ship, was picked up and written from there. That was quite a job to sit there and uh, uh, yes. look about you and see look, all the... Look about you and try to record what has gone on. Yeah. See, the Maryland was ahead of us. There were only two battleships that came out of there afloat. And we were in a, both blocked into a position where we could not come out of the harbor. The Tennessee, uh, the West Virginia lo sank alongside of us and wedged us into the concrete keys where we were tied up. The ship ahead of us was the Maryland, and the outboard of the Maryland was the Oklahoma, which turned over, and when she turned over, she wedged the Maryland into the keys, so the Maryland couldn't move. Uh -huh. And the Arizona then, of course, was behind us, and up ahead of the Maryland then, I, if I remember correctly, it was the California, the Pennsylvania was over, Pennsylvania was in dry dock, and they sunk the dry dock. <laughs> they blew the front of the dry dock off, and so, uh, but the Tennessee and the Maryland, the only two battleships that could uh, get out of there, we got out sometime, oh, I want to say probably about the 18th of December. Boy, that was quite a long time. When, when they finally, well, they had to blast these concrete keys out. They had to blast the concrete piers out in order for these for the two battleships there to be able to, to sneak out between the Oklahoma turned over and the West Virginia sunk vertically straight down. Quite a bit of maneuvering then. Yeah, you had to, had to sneak them right straight out, <laughs> out and down. 
<laughs> so when you left Pearl Harbor, then uh, did you go to uh, back to San Diego? We, or? No, we went into uh, went back into Seattle. I mean, two war patrols on the Tennessee, and both of them, we were started out to the Battle of Wake on one of them, and uh, they turned the, bat the two battleships around and sent them back and sent the aircraft carriers on out. And uh, shortly after that, I was transferred to minesweepers, from the biggest to the smallest. <laughs> and I spent uh, all the next two to three years on minesweepers and went up right before the end of World War II and up to Alaska and turned one of the minesweepers over to the Russians as a under the Lend-Lease program, and then I went into aviation, and I was in aviation at the end of World War II as an aerial navigator. Boy, you must have been a bundle of nerves after well, that was all over. <laughs> oh, it, uh, I loved the Navy, and I loved uh, what I was doing, but it uh, it wasn't that much of a bundle of nerves. It's something you train for and something you live with, and you do automatically. Despite some well-publicized reunions of Pearl Harbor survivors, most of the men who were there on that fateful day of December 7, 1941, never went back. Perhaps they shared Bill Rotrammel's reasons for not returning. I lost a lot of friends, a lot of fellow soldiers and sailors as well that were acquaintances and some very close friends in the Navy too that uh, died there that day. It couldn't be anything but just sadness. There are certain events in history we should always revisit and remember. Events that changed our country and made it what it is today. Pearl Harbor is one of those defining events. And thanks to these recordings, we're able to step back in time, if only for a moment, to hear what it was like for Americans who were there. That's our look back at Pearl Harbor on the off-ramp featuring the voices of veterans of that attack who I met and interviewed on the 40th anniversary of that disaster, back in 1981. This is Bob Smith. Join me again next time when we return with another episode of The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.